Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. We've got some good news on the renewable energy front today, and Cynthia DiRocco is back to tell us about some amazing people who've been defending science. The beginning of a new year can be a mixed bag for all sorts of reasons these days. But on this episode of the podcast, I'm at home looking out at the ocean with hope for the future and the future of how energy is produced in our country. Offshore wind is the rookie player to look out for in this season of renewable energy, while land-based wind and solar energy have just had their best years ever. What's on the horizon for wind energy is just exactly that, expanding horizons. Both national and state governments are embracing this clean energy technology by putting their money where their mouths are through major investments. Investments in wind energy are not just moving towards a clean energy future, but an equitable pro-labor future as well. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by John Rogers, a senior energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists, to learn more about all this promising news in the world of offshore wind energy. John, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Great to be with you, Colleen. Yeah, I really appreciate your commitment to keeping us up to date on what's happening in the different clean energy sectors. I mean, there's a lot of exciting news on the solar front and wind not just offshore wind, but today I really want to dive into the shores of the East and West Coast and the Gulf of Mexico. So, John, what's the good word on wind? Hey, I, I'm right there with you, Colleen. Uh, I, I I will say solar and land-based wind had their best years best years ever in the U.S. in 2020, and and 2021 is is looking really strong. And each of those is worth podcasts of their own. And uh, so I don't want you to, don't want anybody to think I'm, I'm uh, showing favoritism here. But uh, I think what's really exciting about offshore wind for so many of us is, is the newness of it. The, you know, it's sort of like as we're getting in on the ground floor together with this conversation. And, and, you know, we really, we do have a lot of chances to shape how it rolls out. And I think that's, uh, I think it's the promise, it's the power, it's the potential there that, uh, that keeps me coming back to you with more about offshore wind. So what's on the horizon? <laughs> That's a f- fascinating choice of words, Colleen, because a lot of what's going on is beyond the horizon, but it's still incredibly exciting. Maybe if we're talking about U.S. offshore wind, maybe the place to start is at the top, the big picture, the national scale. The Biden administration has embraced offshore wind fully. So in March the administration put out as part of its push for climate action and, and clean energy, put forth a 30,000 megawatt goal by 2030. That is, they're saying we want 30,000 megawatts of offshore wind deployed by 2030. So not just on the drawing board, not just in the planning stages, not just under construction, but actually deployed. We're talking billions of dollars of investment per year. We're talking tens of thousands of people working in offshore wind by 2030 and tens of thousands of people working in the communities to support that activity. We're talking enough electricity generated for the equivalent of 10 million households 
talking tens of millions of metric tons of, of carbon dioxide, basically not being emitted by other power sources because of offshore wind. So that's pretty neat. The, the next neat part is that the administration, the Biden administration, is backing it up with action. So they're investing, finding different ways of investing in offshore wind. One of those is thinking about more leases. They had a recent announcement about where they're going to explore opening up leases for offshore wind developers to put their turbines. So some of those are near existing ones. Some of those are in new areas. So if you look, for example, the New York Bight, which is south of Long Island or off of New Jersey, you look in the, the mid-Atlantic coast, but also areas like off of Maine, in the Gulf of Maine, off the West Coast, in the Gulf of Mexico. So these are all areas that the administration has recently said they'll be exploring and looking to sort of get ready through a very public process, but see if there's potential for leasing out those areas for offshore wind development. What is the rough time frame for getting from exploring to actual production? Yeah, terrific question. We don't know because this is so new, but they've laid out a pretty aggressive timeline for those new lease areas. And, you know, they've got all the steps sketched out. And again, that starts with engaging the public on thinking about what the issues are in a particular area and then defining the areas and testing that and then putting it out to bid. And that's just the starting point, right? You've got then the developers, some developer has to has to be the winning bidder on that and then has to pull all the pieces together, go through the whole permitting process, uh, get the money, get the equipment, get the, not just the parts to, to build the turbines and the towers and the foundations and all, but the equipment, the specialized ships to put the equipment in. So there's a lot that needs to come together, but the administration is committed to it. The, the recent infrastructure bill did have some money for electric transmission, some of which will benefit offshore wind. We're hoping that Congress will be doing a lot more there. And we're certainly watching what states are doing, and they're, they're continuing to step up. They've been such drivers of demand for offshore wind. Uh, I'll give you just one example, and that's California in September really opened up a new front for offshore wind with legislation that requires the state's energy commission to develop a strategic plan for bringing offshore wind into the state's push for 100% carbon-free electricity. So they're recognizing that potential. They're recognizing what offshore wind might be able to do for them as they are moving to 100% carbon-free electricity. And this is a really important next step. So John, the last time you were on the podcast, you were pretty jazzed about the 13 megawatt turbine. I, I believe it was one turbine can power a home for a day in seven seconds. So has technology improved? Are we down to six or five seconds yet? <laughs> wow, you're you're asking a lot there. Uh, but fortunately, I've got something for you. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, the, so we were I was talking then about thirteen megawatt wind turbines. Since then, we've seen projects commit to fourteen megawatt. We've now seen a project off of New York that will be using fifteen megawatt wind turbines. And what they say, the manufacturer of that one says that each rotation of that turbine, each rotation will be capable of powering a home in New York for about one and a half days. So I did the math and said, well, if you, you look at 15 megawatts just going full out and you think about what an average New York house uses, 602 kilowatt hours a month, a 15 megawatt turbine, that's going to be 4.75 seconds. So there are a whole lot of caveats in there. Obviously, you got to get the power from the turbine to the home. You've got to power it for 24 hours, not just five seconds. The, you've, you've got to supply power throughout the day. But that gives you a sense of the scale 
of these turbines that in under five seconds, one of these offshore wind turbines will generate enough to power your home for a day. That's amazing. Yeah, I don't think the industry is stopping there. Eventually, they'll bump up against some technical limits. But at this point, I think we're seeing, you know, there are a lot of advantages to going bigger. You can have more power from fewer turbines, which means fewer foundations, means maybe you can have them use less area for generating the same amount of power. So there is certainly some interest in developing larger and larger turbines. But just even where we've gotten now is amazing. What other innovations are you seeing on the technology front? Well, I'll tell you one we'll be looking at, we're paying a lot of attention to is floating offshore wind turbines because, and I mentioned those new lease areas that the administration is going to be exploring. If you're off the West Coast or if you're in the Gulf of Maine, the outer continental shelf, so in other words, the land under the water drops off really quickly. So that means deeper water which means you're going to have to use floating wind turbines instead of the ones we've had so far. The ones that are planned are embedded in the seafloor. This is going to be floating. Now, there are some projects in, you know, there's one that's been off Scotland for the last couple of years. There are other projects planned in Europe and elsewhere in the world. But I think that's really a technology to watch, again, because we're going to need it if we want to supply some of these areas, if we want to tap the potential off some pieces of our shores. I'll add that it's really interesting to look at where the investment dollars are going. There's an effort uh, called the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium, which is a collaboration among states and the federal government and and industry. And they've made dozens and dozens of investments for reducing costs and reducing risks around offshore wind. And this is stuff like structures. So are they going to be fixed bottom or floating? This is the electrical systems. This is thinking about how do you do operations and maintenance when you're out in the middle of an ocean, all these things. And I think the industry and and we are certainly going to continue to look for cost savings wherever they can be found. So I think this type of innovation is, is really neat. So one development I was excited to read about is the New Jersey wind port and What's exciting to me about that is it it seems to signal a serious investment in wind power. Am, Am I reading that right? You are. And that one is certainly, that was in September, I think, when they broke ground on the project. And that'll be the first port designed specifically with offshore wind in mind. And you have, you certainly have states that are upgrading their port infrastructure. We have here in Massachusetts, we have an offshore wind terminal. You see Connecticut making upgrades to a key port there. You're seeing other places where they're thinking about what's it going to take to be sort of the land-based piece of what offshore wind is going to accomplish. So how do you have the staging areas that can handle the blades that are more than 100 meters long? How do you handle the incredibly heavy nacelles, which are the fat part up on top that the blades connect to, the tower pieces, all those pieces, you've got to have the right kind of land-based infrastructure to make that work. And states are, are really thinking about that. So you, you mentioned New Jersey and Massachusetts, the legislature and the governor are, are moving toward allocating millions of dollars from federal economic stimulus or recovery money to offshore wind infrastructure. So I think states are really gearing up to be an, an active and a, and a central part of offshore wind in their regions. The parts for the wind turbines that we have now mostly come from overseas. Do we manufacture the turbine parts 
here in the U.S.? Not for offshore wind, certainly, because we're early stages there. What we're seeing, and I think what we'll see, is that it will roll out. There are parts, so if you look at foundations, the foundations for the very first offshore wind turbines installed five years ago off of Rhode Island came from Louisiana. So there you're looking at lots of experience with doing energy installations in the marine environment, in the Gulf Coast, and for oil and gas in that case. But you're tapping that expertise to provide the foundations for offshore wind. And you'll see pieces like that. So it might be the wiring, it might be the tower sections before you get to the nacelle and the blades and, and other parts. That said, there was a really exciting announcement recently in Virginia where a company, a leading manufacturer of offshore wind, has committed to putting a blade factory there, a wind turbine blade factory. And that's not a coincidence. Virginia has made one of the strongest commitments to offshore wind. And there's a project that's under development or certainly in the planning stages for off of Virginia. And so these manufacturers are going to look to see where what states are showing that kind of commitment. And that's where they're going to want to set up. So they're thinking about what states they're in, what regions they'll be able to supply and how they can be a big piece of, of what happens with offshore wind as it ramps up in the U.S. Wind turbines, offshore wind, it's going to help enormously with decreasing heat trapping emissions. But are there other benefits that offshore wind will will bring? Yes, definitely, Colleen. One of the things we think about when we think about offshore wind, we're certainly thinking about investments and where those dollars are going to flow and to whom. We're certainly thinking about the tens of thousands of people that the offshore wind industry looks positioned to be employing over the next decade certainly thinking about the clean electricity. We also think a lot about the equity dimensions of offshore wind and and how we do this right. And I guess I might mention a, a few different ways. One is thinking about how it gets decided where the turbines might go. So how the lease areas, the offshore wind lease areas get defined, what projects get approved and under what conditions. You know, is it a public process? What kind of attention are they paying to engaging in those conversations, traditionally marginalized people and communities? So Native Americans, uh, we know that the oil and gas industry has gotten it wrong, really wrong, so much of the time with regard to Native American communities. Uh, offshore wind can do better. We also think about environmental justice communities, which for so many decades have really borne the effects of how we make and use electricity. So I think the process, the decision-making processes, and that extends not just to where the turbines go, but where the rest of the infrastructure ends up. So where, you know, if you picture a project offshore, you've then got a cable, a transmission cable, transmission line that brings that power to land. Where those cables land, where the substations end up, how those decisions get made. This also comes back to, you know, your question about port infrastructure. As we're ramping up these ports, are we thinking about the pollution effects? Are we thinking about ways of dealing with those pollution effects? So port electrification, for example, just in general, sustainable port infrastructure, because those ports are in communities or near communities, and those communities have likely borne more than their fair share of pollution. And maybe I'd add, who's, who's doing the work when it comes to making offshore wind happen, what what attention gets paid to making sure that the workforce represents us, represents the population as a whole, maybe gets us out of historical ruts in terms of labor and race? 
thinking about diversity of the workforce, thinking about the labor standards. Unions are very active in the discussions already. There are agreements with some early projects already in place. I think we're going to want to see a lot more of that. Maybe also how the costs and benefits of the of the project and the development get allocated. So how are we seeing who is, to the extent that we're in, investing in these investing public dollars in getting this off the ground, where is that coming from? Who's who's bearing that? But then also, how are those benefits flowing with equity in mind? We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript, a full bio of our guest, and more resources, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Want to make sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast? The easiest way to do that is to subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. If you're enjoying Got Science, another podcast you might like is called The Change, Women, Technology, and the Anthropocene. The Change was produced by the Climate Change Project, a first-of-its-kind independent publication designed for a digitally educated, climate-anxious world. The Change interviews women who bridge the gap between climate tech and its potential and climate breakdown, spotlighting the very determined and dignified boundary women developing, financing, and procuring climate tech in the Anthropocene. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to our interview. What types of jobs will be created in the offshore wind industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it sort of runs the gamut if you think about project management and project development. Certainly, there's early stuff that needs to happen. But I think where you'll see the bulk of this is in the manufacturing, the deployment, the operations, the maintenance. So as we get to the point of ramping up and doing more and more manufacturing closer to where these projects are going to be, I think you'll see a tremendous effect from that. But also, even in the early stages, just putting up those turbines, installing them, That's that takes a whole a lot of people. So, you know, the pipe fitters, you know, the people who are going to be welding, the electricians, all, all kinds of folks who are involved in this. And again, it's the it's sort of the, the technical pe- people, the trades people. It's the people who are thinking about environmental dimensions of this and making sure we get that right. It starts with the people who are scanning the seabed and looking at where we're actually going to locate these turbines. So I think you'll see all kinds of sort of direct effects, direct job creation. And then again, all those communities where these activities, the land-based parts of these activities are taking place. Everybody from the restaurant, the hotel, and the people who work in the, the ports and all those different pieces, I think will be an important piece of the job creation story for offshore wind. So the jobs you were mentioning, are they likely to be well-paying union jobs? That's right. A lot of these, and certainly that's the expectation, and you're seeing that expectation be sort of codified in the project labor agreements, the types of things we're already seeing moving into place. And I think it'll be really important to keep, keep an eye on that, but that's certainly the expectation. So we're committed to making the transition to clean, renewable energy an equitable one. What are some of the specific challenges in the wind industry and how do we ensure an equitable transition to this super awesome, vibrant technology? 
Terrific, terrific question. I, I guess the the way I think about it is what are the opportunities to get this right this time around? You know, there are a lot of technologies where we've sort of moved forward, certainly over the last 150 years, moved forward and then sort of after the fact said, oh, wait, how do we how do we clean up our mess? And that's certainly not what we want with clean energy. And it's not what we want with offshore wind in particular. So I would say I might mention a few different ways that we can get equity right or righter. One is maybe thinking about how, how it gets decided where the turbines might go. So how the lease areas get defined, what projects get approved, you know, how public is that process? What are the opportunities that people have to provide input and really be heard and shape decisions there? And maybe with particular attention to engaging People and communities that have been traditionally marginalized, offshore wind can do better. Engaging environmental justice communities, again, for so many decades, they've borne the, the effects of how we make and use electricity. We can do better than that. So that's one piece is thinking about the turbines that also applies to where the rest of the the infrastructure ends up where the, you know, if you picture a project is out at sea and then you've got this transmission line, the cables have to come to land somewhere. So where those cables land, where the substations end up, how those decisions get made. And it's really interesting. There's one project that's been engaging with the community in one of the boroughs in New York City. And I think the community is actively trying to shape that and welcome it because they, I think they see potential, certainly job employment potential in that. But you know, continuing pushing to making sure those decisions get made correctly and publicly. And I, that would extend to the port infrastructure. So thinking about how if we're ramping up activities in a port to make it a staging area for offshore wind, how do we make sure that that's not adding to the pollution burden that maybe as, at the same time there's a push for electrification, which is where we know ports are going to have to head. Good point. Just because the port is being built or retrofitted to support clean wind technology doesn't necessarily mean that the port will be using clean energy. That's right. And, and electrification certainly is, a, is going to be a big piece of that, you know, just as it is across our transportation sector. I'd say with as we think about equity, so thinking not just about the equipment and you know, where it's all going to go and how those decisions get made, but also who's going to be doing the work. So what kind of attention is getting paid to making sure that the workforce represents us, all of us, that we're not stuck in the historical ruts that we get into with labor and race, that we... Uh, we're thinking about the diversity of the workforce. We're thinking about labor standards. Unions are very active in the discussions with some of these projects, already have agreements in place with some of the early projects, and that's that's really important. And then maybe I'd add how costs and benefits get allocated. We know we're going to be investing upfront in these technologies and, you know, including public dollars in some cases. How do we make sure that that happens as equitably as possible and that the benefits that come out of that and of out of the offshore wind projects get spread as, as equitably as possible. Well, John, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to tell us about? I, I, I guess I would just say uh, offshore wind is an area worth watching, again, not to the exclusion of other clean energy sources, because I think there's a lot of exciting stuff going on out there. This is, it's a time of such rapid development and growth at all levels. So in terms of government, in terms of industry, in terms of the public's engagement, in terms of our understanding, in terms of the technology, 
Those are all going to be coming together, and you and I will soon be talking about turbines in the water. And in fact, we just broke ground, or the developer just broke ground for the construction of what will be the first large-scale offshore wind turbine in the United States. So that it is, it is underway. So all kinds of stuff to watch for. Stay tuned. Well, I'm excited to get you back on the podcast when we have some stuff underway. It'd be very exciting. John, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Always great to be here, Colleen. Thanks very much. As we head into year three of the pandemic, I know there are still times we need cheering up. And where better to look for inspiration and hope than to ordinary people doing extraordinary things for science? Every year, the Union of Concerned Scientists, or UCS for short, nominates a group of individuals or organizations who have done what's right in the service of science and the public good, even when it would be easier to just stay quiet. We call these folks science defenders, for obvious reasons. And we're devoting this episode's Science for the Win segment to celebrating the wonderful people who are our 2021 UCS science defenders. Welcome our winning correspondent, Cynthia Duraco, to the mic. Thanks, Colleen. It is my pleasure to introduce two individuals and two groups of individuals who are speaking up for science and environmental justice and against structural racism. I'll start with our first group, Stop General Iron. General Iron is a car shredding business that planned to relocate their facility in Chicago's wealthier, whiter north side to the southeast side. The city of Chicago gave them permission, even though the southeast side is already unjustly overwhelmed with polluting industries. Luckily, the southeast side is also full of caring, dedicated residents who have fought for clean air for decades. They came together in a campaign called Stop General Iron to prevent the company from reopening in their neighborhood. Today, the facility's permit is on hold, while the EPA and Housing and Urban Development investigate whether it should be there at all. Next up is the second group, who are each professors within the University of Florida system. Each of them was asked to provide testimony or statements in court cases challenging current Florida laws and policies. This is not unusual. What is unusual is that the university denied these professors the right to provide their testimony and statements, which were at odds with Governor Ron DeSantis's positions. Professors Sharon Austin, Jeffrey Goldhagen, Michael McDonald, and Daniel Smith refused to be silent in the face of this political censorship. They won their right to speak and are now plaintiff in a suit against the university. Moving on to the individuals. First up is Kennard Perry, who works in a Black-owned barbershop in Baltimore. Kennard recognized that because of racism in our healthcare system, barriers to reliable healthcare, and disproportionate exposure to pollution that makes respiratory infections worse, Black people in the U.S. are likelier to get sicker and die from COVID-19 than almost any other group. He also recognized that vaccination against COVID-19 prevents severe infections and death. And he stepped up to serve as a trusted resource among his clientele. When they come to him with hesitancy about COVID-19 vaccines, he listens without judgment. He shares his own experience and reasons for being vaccinated. And he is most likely saving lives doing so. And our final defender is Tambra Ray Stevenson, she began noticing that her family members were being diagnosed with diseases common to Black folks in the U.S. and people in Africa, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. 
attributing some of these health disparities to a food system fraught with racial inequity, Stevenson began studying nutrition. She earned a master's in public health, and she founded Women Advancing Nutrition, Dietetics, and Agriculture. WANDA is a nonprofit centering Black women and girls in nutrition, providing them with opportunities to be community leaders. Congratulations to each of our 2021 science defenders, and thanks to all of them for giving us hope and speaking up for science. I'm Cynthia DeRocco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to John Rogers. Science for the Win was brought to you by Cynthia Duraco. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Kana Tagawa. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. If you like the podcast, here are a couple of ways you can help us. First, you can subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Another way to help is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us, check us out on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe, get vaccinated, and see you next time.